You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to a new episode of the Transformative Podcast with me, Anna Calori. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Rezet, the research center for the history of transformations at the University of Vienna, where we study economic, social, and cultural transformations on a European and global scale. I am happy to introduce our guest today. Christian Godzi is professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the critically acclaimed author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, which has been translated into 14 languages. I would also like to mention her previous book, Second World, Second Sex, Socialist Women's Activism and Global Solidarity During the Cold War, which was published with Duke University Press. And this book traces the activism of Eastern European and African women during the 1975 United Nations International Year of Women and the subsequent decade for women. So Professor Godzi's writing has been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, the New Republic, Le Monde Diplomatique, and Jacobin, among other outlets. And she has appeared on dozens of podcasts, and we are very much happy to welcome her today into our own podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. My first question is actually about your new book, which is titled Everyday Utopia, What 2000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life. And it has come out only a few weeks ago. So this is really exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about it and how it connects with your previous work? Sure. So it's a book that I wrote during the deepest, darkest moments of the pandemic, when I was reflecting on many of the reactions that I got to why women had better sex under socialism. That book was unexpectedly successful in the sense that it reached a much wider audience than I ever intended it to reach. It was written during the Trump administration at a moment of great frustration in the United States. And I was speaking directly to young Americans who were feeling really disencouraged and disenchanted by the political system. And I was trying to say, look, there are other ways of doing things. But one of the things that I consistently heard from readers was this fear of trying to do things differently. Like they recognized that capitalism and liberal democracy were sort of on the ropes, that they were struggling. But any suggestion of doing things differently created a lot of anxiety, like it could get worse rather than better. And so people were sort of clinging to the status quo because they were afraid of change. And this is what really started getting me to think about utopia and utopianism and the role that utopian thinking plays in moving us forward out of dark political times into a brighter political future. Going back to the main kind of core of your work, I would like to ask you in this particular context, do you think that women have a particularly salient role in thinking about or actually realizing utopian projects? Absolutely. So the specific sorts of utopian projects that I look at in this book, as I did in my previous work, 
are utopian projects to reimagine the family. Many people don't realize that from Pythagoras on down through Plato and Thomas More and Tommaso Campanella and people like August Bebel and Charles Fourier and Alexandra Kollontai, there have been many theorists and theologians and philosophers who have understood that in order to change the wider society, to make gains in the social, political, and economic sphere, you also have to attend to the private sphere. You have to attend to the family. Because women are so important in the shape of that private sphere, I believe that all utopian projects in some ways are necessarily also women's projects. My next question is, if we actually were to historicize the different forms of everyday utopias that emerge in the 20th century, do you notice a convergence or a divergence in political horizons and the imaginative horizons that they project? And if there is a convergence or a divergence of what kind of convergence or divergence is and, and why do you see this? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because obviously utopias are very specific to certain people and certain movements. So you can have right-wing utopias, very conservative utopias, or you can have very progressive left-wing utopias. I think traditionally, if we think about Thomas More's coining of the word utopia in 1516 when he wrote his little book, it's a play on the ancient Greek Utopia can mean a no place or nowhere, but could also mean a good place, e-utopia, right? And I think that ambiguity is intentional when we use that word. So if we stay with the progressive tradition, if we look at, for instance, socialist experiments in the 20th century, and we try to trace an intellectual genealogy of those experiments back, it's very clear that they all kind of point back to a really interesting history of, you know, Kollontai reading Babel, Babel reading Fourier and Saint-Simon and Owen, Owen reading Campanella and more and more reading Plato and Plato reading Pythagoras or thinking about Pythagoras and his commune on Crotone. And the thing that they have in common, right, is equality of men and women, living together in large, non-consanguineous groups of people, or if they are consanguineous, they're extended families rather than nuclear families. And they often tend to share property in common. And there's this idea, and we can also throw in here the anarchists like Kropotkin and Bakunin and Proudhon and others who are really concerned with the ways in which the family as a private economic unit is the mechanism in society that allows for the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege from fathers to their legitimate sons. This was a concept called the oikos in ancient Greece, and it wasn't the only concept. The Spartans had a very different way of organizing the family, and obviously Plato in The Republic, when he writes about Callipolis, he talks about a completely different family form for the guardians of his republic. And so I think that actually, and if we expand this out and we include Christianity, early pre-325 Christianity, if you read Acts in the Bible, there are certain passages that say that the disciples of Jesus Christ lived together and shared their property in common. 
And even if you go outside of the Western tradition and you look at Buddhism or you look at Hinduism, you can see again a questioning of property, a desire to live together in larger groups of people. So I think in all historical contexts and in cross-culturally and trans-historically, there has always been a group of people that we would call utopians. I want to say that these are the other 1%, right? You have the economic elites, but then you always have this other 1% of people that live on the margins of societies, and they're doing things very, very differently. Either they're living in large groups of people and they practice some kind of polyamory or polygamy or group marriage, or they're celibate, they're asexuals living in communities that are cloistered, like Cenobitic monastics, who are raising, still raising children, they're orphans, or they're taking in other children that are unwanted by their parents and alloparenting those children. It's fascinating to me that for 2,500 years, you can put Hindus and Jains and Buddhists and Christians and socialists and feminists and anarchists and environmentalists and all sorts of groups together. And when you really look at their doctrines, they're talking about very similar ways of reorganizing the private sphere. And I find that fascinating. This new book kind of uh, focuses more, as you mentioned, on the kind of like the private sphere and how utopias speak to that. I think it's also interestingly connects with your previous work where you actually looked at more contemporary or at least more recent than 2,500 years ago. Um, sponsored historical experiments with socialism that actually, as you argue, basically more successfully improved the material conditions of women's lives than actually their capitalist counterparts. So my question here is, why do you think it's actually important to reflect back on the private sphere aspect on this dimension of utopias and kind of like move away from what perhaps has been more explored, which is the kind of grand state-sponsored, big ideologically pushed forms of utopias. Exactly. This is a really important question because I do think it's important to recognize that while women in the state socialist countries of Eastern Europe in the 20th century did in fact progress much faster and much further than their Western counterparts. Those societies never really undid patriarchy, as we can see as it's resurging so strongly in the region now. There was a way in which they were obviously fundamentally not utopian societies. If we look at what the Bolsheviks in the 20s were hoping for, certainly people like Alexandra Kollontai was hoping for, it is not what the Soviet Union became, right? So when she joined the workers' opposition, she was speaking directly and openly against centralized power and the kind of, you know, state capitalism basically is what you have with the new economic policy in the Soviet Union in the 20s. I think that the reason that Kalantai would say that the Soviet experiment failed to reach its sort of utopian goal. I mean, obviously, these are really huge goals, but is because they left the private sphere very much intact after the 20s. There were these moments of liberalization, but most of the laws that were put into place and the policies that were put into place were reversed by Stalin, by 
1936. And so if you leave the traditional family, if you leave traditional social relations in the private sphere untouched, it actually turns out that it's very difficult to do anything in the public sphere. It's very difficult to even realize these grand utopian visions because the fundamental building blocks of society underpinning those visions of utopia are based in a traditional conservative past. And that's why people like Pythagoras, people like Plato, like Thomas More, again, all of these thinkers all the way down to the present day with contemporary family abolitionists. I prefer to use the term family expansionist because I think we could expand our vision of family to include chosen family, both consanguineous and non-consanguineous kin. But all of these traditions rely on this fundamental idea that you cannot travel to utopia. Utopia is a place out there that requires a transformation of society starting at the bottom and working its way up rather than the other way around. And I think that that's an insight that came to me after doing all of the reading and research that I had to do for this book, which is 2,500 years of intellectual history. Obviously, I couldn't cover everything, But I did my best to try to include Western and non-Western traditions to look at religious as well as secular, to look at feminist and non-feminist. And what I find is this amazing convergence of the same ideas reappearing over and over again in just different guises with different wrapping, but all pushing for the same generalized project, even if the ends of those projects are articulated differently in different religious or secular traditions. It's really impressive what you said, that you managed to cover all of this in what promises to be like such an interesting read. And you mentioned now in your answer something that is a very important keyword for our research center, which is transformations. Us as colleagues working at Rezet, we are broadly interested in the histories of transformations that we kind of widely understand as social and economic and cultural processes of change in the wake of deep historical caesuras on a European and a global scale. So my question here for you is, what would you say is the transformative power of utopias, and particularly of those projects that actually seem to fail in their realization? Absolutely. I think that utopias are essential. I believe Oscar Wilde said that a map of the world that doesn't have utopia on it isn't worth glancing at, right? If we look at the work of the German philosophers Karl Mannheim and Ernst Bloch, who really talk about the politics of hope and the role that utopia plays in pushing us forward, we cannot have transformation unless we have people out there actively thinking about different ways of living. If we get stuck in the status quo, we'll just keep circling around the same basic ideas and spiraling into some perhaps devastating climate apocalypse or uh, inequality that's so severe that the rich people go live on Mars and leave us all behind on a dying planet, right? There are so many dystopian visions out there of what the future might bring. And I think young people are becoming quite immobilized by the prevalence of these dystopian visions. And so the project of all utopias, all of them, is to allow us to practice our cognitive capacity to hope. So in the psychological literature, 
people understand hope as both an emotion. Hope is the opposite of fear and despair and anxiety. But hope is also a cognitive capacity. So that means that like memory, memory is the ability of our brains to remember the past. And we know that we can strengthen our memory. So if we memorize telephone numbers instead of just having our phones auto dial for us, or if we remember our grocery list rather than putting it into our little notes app, we actually do active things to strengthen the cognitive capacity of memory. Hope is a cognitive capacity about the future. People who have a greater cognitive capacity for hope are people who can actually think about things that they want to achieve either individually or as a society together. And they imagine pathways to that end goal. They imagine what obstacles they might face. And then they try to come up or daydream around those obstacles. And so one of the things that has happened today is many of us have lost our cognitive capacity to hope. The society that we live in bombards us with despairing messages, and we are overwhelmed with information. And I think it's extremely important that what utopias do in order to underpin and catalyze transformative processes is to get us to hope, to get us to think about the future, what Ernst Bloch calls militant optimism, radical hope. That in and of itself is a political project. And that's the political project that I think we need today. You know, my last book was very much a book about the past and what we could learn from the past. And this book is also a book that looks to the past for answers about how we can move forward in the future. And I think the key insight is that the utopian impulse, this idea of radical hope and militant optimism is absolutely necessary if we are going to transform our societies to face the many challenges that the 21st century is going to throw at us. Thank you so much for this very militantly hopeful closing note. So I would like to thank Professor Kristin Godsey for joining us today. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on and talk about this book. I'm really super excited about it. I believe it'll be out in Dutch and German in September. And then so far, two more confirmed translations into Spanish and Japanese with some more in the works. But I'm really hoping that this is a book that will bring people hope and give people tools to think about the ways in which we can collectively build a better and more sustainable and just brighter future. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.